Welcome to Slash Into Me. Slash Into Me, the only podcast that fuses horror movies and Dave Matthews Band. I'm Chris Rady. And I'm Pat Hoskin. Today, we're going to be talking about the 1982 Tommy Lee Wallace movie, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. And as always, we'll dip into some DMB when the time is right. Let's indulge. Just so it's said, uh, happy October. While we're recording this, it is now two days into the month of October, which is the haunted month of lore and also the month of Halloween. That's right. And that's important. We should say, yeah, because Halloween is its a big part of this whole thing, <laughs> this podcast, as well as the movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode three of Slash Into Me. How are you feeling, Pat? I feel good. You touched on this in the first episode. You talked about in the first episode how it was tough to talk about a good movie like Halloween in a silly way, which is kind of what this podcast is. But now we're getting into the actual silly movies, so it's going to be a lot easier. And I think that we're going to we're going to be able to have a lot more fun with it because, you know, the first two movies are just like pretty good. The second one's a little absurd, but the third one is like, I don't know. I mean, it was my first time <laughs> watching the third one ever which is called Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, and there are no witches. <laughs> I mean, there are witch masks. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts about this movie, but my first thought that I want to say before we do anything else is that there is an episode of the Nicktoon Doug, the beloved Nickelodeon series, where Doug and his best friend Mosquito Valentine, known as Skeeter, go to like a haunted place that I think is called Funky Town. Yeah, that's right. It is called Funky Town. <laughs> and they meet a very scary, uh, maybe dead, um, but certainly scary, ghoulish, ghost, ghostly figure named Baron Von Heckelhalfer. His getup is like he is a green-skinned figure with a really long, warty nose and beady red eyes in a mask and then a hood. And when I saw the witch mask from Halloween three i was like oh that's that's baron von um heckelhofer <laughs> i'll i'll put a i'll put a comparison photo like a side by side on instagram so people can see this i don't know if this is just because if you're to draw a witch or some kind of ghoulish green-skinned figure this is what it looks like but i was getting some serious baron von heckelhofer vibes from that all right it's been said now aside from comparing the movie to old nickelodeon tv shows i think my initial thought of this movie i had seen it I, for some reason, my brother owned this movie on VHS. Wow. And it was one of the few movies we owned. We weren't like a family that owned movies. Mm-hmm. We had Halloween 3. We had Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I think we had maybe Sleepless in Seattle. I think I think the biggest tell that you weren't a family that owned movies is that those were the three movies that you owned. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I, think, I think that says it all. But we had Halloween 3, and so I had watched it maybe a couple times when I was a kid, and I knew Halloween. I watched Halloween a lot. And then I think, like everybody, when this movie came out in 1982, they went to see it. They were excited to see it. And then they walked away, you know, 92 minutes later or whatever, and was like, where's Michael Myers? <laughs> what happened? Yeah, that's the craziest part about this whole thing is like, that's 
essentially what the only thing i knew about this movie going in i think i knew two things and two things only one was that michael myers is not in this movie and although he kind of is but we'll get into that and then the only other thing i knew is that it involved some sort of evil masks or some kind of mask masks were central to the plot i just didn't know how those are the only things i knew about the movie and going into the movie knowing only those did not alleviate my disappointment with how bad i thought this movie was <laughs> which is what i'll say up front um so let's go into a little bit of the background of the movie so this movie was directed by tommy lee wallace who had not directed a halloween movie before if i'm incorrect he may have never directed a movie before it might have been his first his first time directing a movie yeah it looks like it was but he had been involved in both halloween one and two on the production side of things and he was good friends with john carpenter and deborah hill and they actually offered him the job of directing Halloween 2, he turned down the job ultimately. And the thing that turned him off from taking the job was the scene where the person gets a hyperdemic needle inserted into their eyeball. He was like, that's too much for me. I don't think it's like, I think it's over the top. Like I won't, you know, I'm not going to go that far with a series that I, or with a movie that I think is so admirable. He didn't want there. He didn't want to direct a movie where someone gets a hypodermic needle through their eye. But he was cool with a movie where a TV commercial activates a chip <laughs> in a haunted mask that basically melts a child's face and then causes snakes and bugs to crawl out of his gaping wound face. <laughs> yeah, and of course, I mean, he was also cool with a movie that uh, a man dressed like a hybrid sort of like Pee Wee Herman meets the detective from Twin Peaks pulls the head off of a hobo. <laughs> <laughs> Which happens pretty early on in the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Tommy Lee Wallace wrote and directed the film. Carpenter and Hill were both involved again as executive producers. Mustafa Akkad was involved. Irwin Yablans was involved. Dino De Laurentiis, who was another sort of producing figure in the early ones, uh, was involved again. So it's a very similar cast of characters with a different director. And obviously the big thing that Michael Myers is not in the movie, which uh, to Halloween 3's credit, I think is its strongest point. As we know, you know, from episodes one and two, Carpenter wanted Michael Myers done. He wanted him done after the first movie. Then they made the second movie. At the end of the second movie, they burned him completely to like smithereens and Carpenter says, it's done. It's all done. We're never filming another movie with Michael Myers. But he liked the Halloween franchise in a sort of like anthology way. He wanted Halloween to go on as a yearly thing. These annual movies that came out and just dealt with standalone sort of creepy, spooky concepts that all took place on Halloween, which I think is a really cool idea. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah, I grew up watching The Twilight Zone. That was like a large part of my childhood, and I think it was very formative and is like probably a strong reason why I'm doing this podcast. And now as an adult, like I'm a big fan of Black Mirror. You know, things like that just sort of work for me, and I think it would have been really cool. Like, you know. It, it was cool, and I get that I see that that's why this movie has kind of a sci-fi plot if it's going to be the beginning of kind of a new direction like you don't want to do another psycho killer type slasher plot line if you're trying to distance yourself from the previous two which kind of helped define the psycho killer slasher plot lines you want to do something that's different enough that um yeah can take you into another dimension and a whole new direction as well so for that i yeah i think like it's cool 
I think the story idea is like fairly unique. The the central premise of the film is that which you don't really find out until pretty late in the game. The very end. Yeah. Which kind of gives it some of the things that I have issue with in terms of like character motivations and just kind of the central tension. I think I was a little too harsh on it. I don't think it's a very good movie, but I think it's really interesting to watch. And I actually am pretty excited to watch it again. I don't know when I'll do that, but I'm legitimately <laughs> excited because I think that there's parts of it that I, I think are cool and will be cooler on the second time. All I can tell you, mister, is watch out. Seen the TV cameras yet? He's watching you, friend, I guarantee you that. Hey, Cochran! Fuck you! Oh, it's all right, it's all right, it don't matter to me. He's probably listening. And if he is, I got one thing to say. It's the last Halloween for that lousy factory of his. Its central villain, sort of, is this man who is at the head of a large shadowy organization who wants to kind of rein in the excesses of Halloween, or I guess rein in the commercialization and the commodification of Halloween and bring it back to its roots, which are about uh, animal sacrifice and human sacrifice and pure chaos dealt out by the Druids and different people in historic Ireland in this Celtic mysticism thing that is one of the through lines from the second film. And so I, I give it credit for all that. Yeah, I would say it's arguably maybe the only through line. One of the things that they rectify in this movie is they pronounce Sawain correctly. Yeah. Which you aptly called in episode two, so that, you know, props. Thank you. But other than that, there is pretty much nothing. Well, there is one more thing. It's more subtle. It, it is the opening credits involving a jack-o'-lantern, which the other two also have. Yeah, that's true. But that's more of a, a nod stylistically as opposed to like thematically i would say but yeah that's a little bit more superficial seeming but yeah it's it's definitely there and i think that was very intentional i love the opening credits of this movie by the way just want to say that i think they're fantastic yeah i think they're done really well there are apps that you can download on your phone that will help your instagram posts um and twitter videos and different social videos look like the way that the opening credits of this film look which are like <laughs> really early 80s vhs kind of graininess um, like when things were starting to go right to video as opposed to um, to tape. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, which I just thought was funny because like they're they're oddly chic now, and it, that coupled with the music, which is done by John Carpenter again, I think with a little help from this guy Alan Howarth, who did the music in Number Two with Carpenter as well. Okay, so that makes sense because I didn't know that, but that makes a lot of sense because we talked about this a little bit last time. But like the music in Two is a little bit sharper, and it's it's definitely like. It's a little bit more piercing. It's really synth heavy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, it, it kind of like moves with the times as the synths and as the keyboards get more advanced, the soundtrack does as well. And I think three is like, it preserves a lot of the same kind of sound of the music of the first two, especially in the second one, but it makes it different enough. It's not the same theme, first of all, which is important, but the theme incorporates a lot of the same kinds of sounds and like tonality yeah that sure. the second one has that i really liked and so like yeah just a combination of those two things i was like man if i had like a cool ass insta video that had this effect <laughs> on it that'd be that'd be pretty chic we do have an instagram account that we could download an app for that's true we should look into that at slash into me yeah <laughs> yeah well i think it's good early on to note the successes of the film because they're going to be few and far between yeah yeah that's a good point the opening credits the music both kill it 
from there on out, it gets a little shaky. So the people in this film, you have the star of the film, Tom Atkins, who at that point, I don't think was like a massive actor. And he never became, you know, like a Tom Cruise or whatever, but he went on to do some things. Like he had been in another John Carpenter movie, The Fog, uh, with Kurt Russell. He eventually was in Lethal Weapon, I think. He's just kind of like a working actor. Yeah, he's like he's like a character actor. He pops up and stuff. Yeah. You have uh, the supporting actress, Stacey Nelkin, who plays Ellie, the sort of love interest in the movie, who I actually think, and from reading other reviews, people kind of agree that a lot of the movie is really over the top, but Stacey Nelkin did a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah, for sure. She also apparently... Well, do you, were you about to say the Woody Allen thing? Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, you can just say because I this really blew my fucking mind earlier. Yeah, yeah. So, so she was in Annie Hall, a Woody Allen film, when she was seventeen years old, and had a relationship with Woody Allen while he was forty-two years old. And as we know, like Woody Allen, kind of is questionable at best when it comes to these relationships. Yeah, it's crazy. Like his his most recent movie it like probably won't even come out in it like a year ago i think when the me too movement was just getting started and getting its like massive groundswell i think people were like oh but what do you, i mean these allegations have been around forever like he's probably above it and then this movie is crazy like selena gomez stars in it with timothy chalamet who's like one of like the young it actors and now they're like yeah well, well it probably will never come out wow but yeah he so apparently like the the teenage character in Manhattan is essentially based on Stacey Nelkin, okay. co-lead in this movie with Tom Atkins. And the age difference between them is one thing. I mean, that's like, I feel bad for her for having to like, you know, play opposite all these like men who are twice <laughs> twice her age for a long time, apparently. Just lusting over her. I mean, Tom Atkins is kind of a good looking cat, right? He's got like kind of that Burt Reynolds thing going on. Like he's got the mustache and just sort of like the broad chest and like, big back you know <laughs> he looks very classic american to the point where when he's wearing like a flannel red flannel shirt and like workman <laughs> khaki jean pants he's like the brawny man yeah but then he's also a doctor so he dresses like an auto mechanic or something but then when he gets called into the hospital he's like oh, i'm a doctor and he just puts a white coat over his like <laughs> his like blue collar seeming stuff but i don't know i guess i mean they make him an alcoholic in this movie yeah maybe to underline that like oh he's just a guy they kind of make him don draper he's like an alcoholic who's like a serial womanizer but also handsome and like capable (laughs) yeah he's this i don't know we can't get too ahead of ourselves but i think that the sex scene in this movie is one of the most ridiculous things i've ever seen in my life (laughs) but he is he is he's kind of like you know you were talking about the me too movement this is like a pretty solid example of it in action but in fiction (laughs) dr chalice is his character he is very problematic he's like real handsy he says to a nurse at one point like oh you want to take a nap with me (laughs) after he slaps her ass or maybe right before yeah (laughs) that's right yeah it's yeah it's not okay what he does no it's absolutely not there's also like you were talking about the sex scene that's eventually going to happen there's no lead up to that. Aside from the fact that you know he's like a bit of a womanizer, they don't have any sexual tension. The biggest downfall of this movie is that I'm like, we're here, we're doing this podcast. Obviously, we love these kind of over the top, goofy horror films. If we didn't, we wouldn't watch them and we wouldn't talk about them. But like, 
give me a little bit of exposition. Like I can buy into your like wacko idea that these masks are going to take over America's children. I can even buy into the fact that a piece of Stonehenge had been stolen and taken across the Atlantic. But <laughs> just like get there, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, there, there has to be more than than what we have here. I agree. And that's the problem is these characters really aren't written. They're just kind of all types. Every single one of them is a type. Yeah. You, so you have heroic doctor who is not a cop, but is like, well, whatever happened is not right. I'm going to go find out what happened. And then you have the kind of drifter from out of town. Who's like also a little mysterious. Who is like, I need to find out what happened to my father. And she ends up linking up with the doctor. And then you have, like I said, the shadowy head of, the corporation who is at fault for all this stuff. Yeah. Colin Cochran. No, Connell Cochran. That's Connell Cochran. Ah, Mr. Chalice. Where is Ellie? Mrs. Smith. Ah, sure, I believe she's resting just now. Didn't take it long to get here, Mr. Chalice. Dr. Chalice, I should say. soon Halloween morning be a very busy day for me the central plot of this movie gets going because a man is murdered in a hospital room by another man who then self-immolates in his car (laughs) and then the doctor who sees it happen says you know what I need to find out what's happening because the cops just go well, that was pretty crazy, right? Um, anyway, uh, I guess we'll guess it's a case closed. Guy was a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the same thing in this in the second movie we were talking about when As Ben, ben Tramer, yeah, yeah, it's it's the same thing. I mean, I saw it, I was like, oh, it's another Tramer, except you know, the guy who sets himself on fire is actually a robot or something. Still a little unclear on the details. Yeah, that is a little unclear as to why a robot would need to. I guess he he wants to get rid of the evidence, which he does. Or someone does. That's very unexplained as well. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like the lab technician at one point is like, I didn't find any human elements, but I found these like weird machine parts. And yeah, so I guess... Yeah, there's like a moment of realization that you're supposed to buy into, but all she does is look at like a a burnt nut or like like a washer or something. It's (laughs) not... Yeah. And then immediately gets murdered by a power drill. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she sure does. But to go back, you were talking about stereotyped characters. You also have the sort of like bitchy ex-wife who, I don't know if you read this or noticed this. I noticed it immediately. Did you see who's who plays that character? Yeah, it's Annie from the first movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> which is crazy. Yeah. Well, you know why? It's because she was married to Tommy Lee Wallace who directed the movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, so it was like a Spielberg situation with uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah. Well, okay, so there's a couple reasons why this is really crazy to me. One is that in this movie, in Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, you see a trailer for the original Halloween, which means that we're in a universe in which Halloween is a fictional movie, and Nancy Loomis, the actor, played Annie in Halloween, but also is this mother... So it's like a weird sort of inception. I was texting you about this earlier. Kind of like in the movie Fast and the Furious, Ludacris is an actor in the movie, but during the movie you hear a Ludacris song. So you don't know (laughs) whether to understand if Ludacris is real in the real world and like 
sort of blows your mind the more you think about it. Yeah. But the other confusing part about her being in this role is that, so her name is Nancy Loomis. Loomis being a character from the original two Halloweens. She played Annie in the first and second Halloween. And then also her name in the third Halloween is Linda, which is a character from Halloween one. Oh. So it's just... Wow. (laughs) Is that right? Completely baffling. Oh, yeah. Linda. Yeah. Yeah. Linda spelled with an I in the third one and spelled with a Y in the first one. Right. A lot of these folks, if you just click their IMDb pages or their Wikipedia pages, a lot of the actors from this film, like their top credit that they'd be known for is Halloween 3. Yeah. They're mostly character actors or people who, you know, didn't really go on to be big things past this film. I mean, a lot of them got solid work. They're all working. The ones who are still alive are probably still getting work because they're like really good character actors, but it's like... Yeah, this this film didn't make anybody in the same way that Jamie Lee Curtis was made by the first film. And I think that's important. It is important. The other thing to mention as far as the actors go is the person who plays this uh, this sort of like figurehead of, of Silver Shamrock uh, is a guy named Dan O'Herlihy. He's kind of like Don Pleasance in that he had been in like at least 50 movies before this. He's like sort of an old timey actor, and yeah, like I think he was nominated for best actor or best supporting actor in Robinson Crusoe from like 1954 or something. So like, you know, he's like another name that some people might recognize, but he doesn't ultimately do the job. <laughs> yeah, and now he's also in Twin Peaks. Oh, is he? Yeah, he is Andrew Packard, who is the guy who owns. Packard Sawmill or used to own it because now it's owned by Josette who and then the guy's sister I think it's been a really long time since I have seen it but yeah he's he's in other things but yeah again as this kind of figure who yeah is like a a, a staple of you know older Hollywood stuff he lived to be 85 he lived like a really long life but yeah he usually kind of played these probably old old school um he does like a, a different you know he does an irish accent in the film sort of like faded but in keeping with his character and in keeping with the spirit of the film which again like <laughs> to connect the druids and Samhain to this very irish town in northern california where like the in- the innkeeper is like oh we've got a room for you here like that it's so hokey yeah <laughs> this like irish enclave and it's so over the top like they drive into town and there's a gas station called Flannery's and there's a (laughs) place called the Dublin Inn and there's a bank called Shamrock Savings. Yeah. What I was thinking about when I saw that was I, when I was in high school, I used to do these film competitions with a friend of mine who now works in film. It was a 48 hour competition. You would had 48 hours to like film and edit and produce and put out this short film. uh, And they would give you parameters and we would always sit down and we would write out as many ideas as we could initially. And then we would basically take everything and throw it away and then do it again because the first ideas you come up with are always the worst. Yeah. But it's just like a way to start brainstorming. And I feel like that's exactly what didn't happen with this movie. I feel like somebody wrote down the first idea they could and was like, yep, let's do it. Let's make a movie. Let's make a movie about an Irish, like sinister Irish enclave in Northern California who is trying to kill all of America's children. Let's do that. (laughs) And and yeah, I agree. And, And one thing that I did like about this film is that 
the villains being just kind of like really generic looking white middle-aged white guys in suits i mean there's almost like a mr smith agent smith uh rather quality to it like from the matrix yeah i was thinking that too and and like so that kind of by and large like is scary like categorically systematically like a shadowy corporation run by white men and like kind of being personified as the villains like is scary intellectually if you think about it because yeah like it it could work yeah and there's a couple shots that i think are a little bit menacing for sure but they're definitely not scary in the same way that michael myers is scary and it sucks because like you have no choice but to compare it to that especially knowing what happens after this movie which is that they make a bunch more halloween movies with michael myers because of how this one was received which was not well it was not positively right yeah, actually, I have some quotes here from film reviewers, film critics. One of them, a guy named Jim Harper, wrote, Any plot dependent on stealing a chunk of Stonehenge and shipping it secretly across the Atlantic is going to be shaky from the start. Yeah. There are four time zones across the United States, so the Western Seaboard has four hours to get the fatal curse-inducing advertisement off the air, which is a pretty massive plot hole. <laughs> like... Yeah, well, so I was thinking about that. I was like, either they're planning so that it all airs at the same time, in which case it would have to air on the east coast at midnight which no kid is going to be up at midnight anyway like their parents right. wouldn't let them <laughs> or they're it's going to air at nine o'clock in each time zone which gives yeah like a several hour head start yeah it, it it kind of falls apart when you think about it there's another quote here from uh roger ebert he said it was a little shorter he just said what's cochran's plan kill the kids and replace them with robots why <laughs> <laughs> yeah why is any of this happening <laughs> the only the only hint we get at that is cochran saying near the end of the film like he's kind of like glorifying Sawin as the way his ancestors did it in like a weird way that it would be like uh back in the old country i remember there was this quaint little inn where we would go and then we've come here and everything's and we have no money and we're outsiders in this land like it was it was delivered in that same kind of tone, but it was about like, ah, yes, when everyone used to kill each other and the the hills would run red with blood. <laughs> that was great. We should do that here. We we, we, we got to get this going again. So, so that's a weird motivation for a plot. And and like I couldn't help but thinking about Austin Powers or like I guess I was thinking of a Bond film, but I really have only seen like two Bond films and I've seen three Austin Powers films, so I guess that wins by default. But like I was thinking of the climax of the film when the head of silver shamrock who is cochran is kind of commanding his robot lackeys to go do all this stuff and they're all kind of behind computers and they're pushing buttons and they're overseeing stuff they're security monitors of the perimeter and then he ties the hero of the film uh dr chalice and makes him he ties him to a chair and makes him watch what's going to happen on tv and then he puts the mask on him essentially hoping to like melt his face with the mask or whatever but then obviously the dude escapes and breaks all the shit down and kind of busts in and saves the day sort of <laughs> but it, it reminded me of a bond film i was like this guy's a bond villain and he his motivations are unclear past he just wants to fuck shit up and I, it's, <laughs> it's like an alex jones conspiracy that's what i was thinking the whole time i was like i just kept thinking about alex jones like doing a whole episode with, like it, it's not, it wasn't, oh, the, they're turning, uh, they're putting chemicals in the water to turn the frogs gay. It was like, folks, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, they got the television, they bought big media, 
they're going to turn your kids, uh, they're going to melt their faces on Halloween. And, and I'm serious here, folks. If you, if you don't think snakes are going to come out of those masks, you're damn wrong. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, you, I just, I, I kept thinking about, this is an InfoWars conspiracy, but made as a, as a film. And, and in that film, the guy who's trying to apparently stop it from happening, although he doesn't even realize the danger of it until much later, so he doesn't necessarily know the stakes, but he certainly knows that this organization is murderous. And so what he does to help that is he drives several hours away to this town in the middle of nowhere to lies to his ex-wife and then goes and fucks a stranger in a $40 a night motel. <laughs> he brought a six pack of Miller High Life with him too. Oh yeah, the champagne. The champagne of beers. <laughs> it was the start of the year in our old Celtic lands and we'd be waiting in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. One small little, little thing that doesn't have any impact on the plot at all, but that was actually a legitimately terrifying scene was when he's like sneaking back into the factory, opens the door and finds that old woman knitting. Yeah. She's really scary. She's like, it's not, not, it's not like a jump scare, but it's like, she's very creepy. And then he like finds that, that she's some sort of weird automaton and Cochran comes in and is like, that was an 18th century relic. <laughs> yeah. Like he just comes in and ruins the moment. But it was really scary for like five seconds. I was, I thought that that was done really well. Do you think that was your favorite moment or do you have a particular favorite moment from the film? I think that that was my favorite serious moment. But I don't think that this film needs to be measured by its serious moments. I think that it needs to be measured by its ridiculous moments. And my favorite one of those is when the shop owner who is there to pick up her order of masks accidentally triggers the chip in the back of the mask and gets lasered in the face and her face turns into some sort of weird bloody version of the elephant man (laughs) yeah she gets like really (laughs) grotesquely deformed it's really really gross yeah it honestly is kind of reminiscent of carpenter's movie the thing it's like the first crazy thing that happens there's these three dogs and they get attacked by the thing and they're turned into like you know the thing like mimics the dogs but it's like this weird like three-headed dog like bloody creature because it yeah i don't know it was kind of like that i was sort of thinking the same thing when yeah when i saw like the end product of what her face had become where like her mouth had sort of just become like flesh flaps <laughs> and there was definitely some grossness yeah she just sort of like peeled back and yeah like, she looks inside out yeah yeah and it reminded me of the thing too it reminded me of that one guy who i think he's on the surgical table and he ends up like his body like rips in half and he it's like all elongated oh, and yeah 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 so i i definitely got vibes of that i also got some vibes and just in terms of the conspiracy elements and all the people who look alike uh, that are robots, though you don't know that for a lot of the movie. I got some of the vibes from the Carpenter movie They Live, which I've actually never seen, but I do know. It feels like it's so pervasive in pop culture. It was like parodied on South Park. Um, it was parodied in just. I think they did an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode 
where that they basically just took that plot but made it like i don't know for kids i guess so it wasn't like a big conspiracy it was just like some haunted shit but yeah like you know the premise of that movie with uh with no i don't know anything about that movie well so it stars rowdy rowdy roddy piper (laughs) first of all that's the first thing you need to know (laughs) Um, that's pretty much all i need to know i feel like yeah yeah and he he discovers a plot where if he puts on these special glasses he can see which people are actually like not people but I, I don't I don't quite know what they are if they're aliens or if they're if if it's kind of like an invasion of the body snatchers type plotline, um, right. which which I did read that Tommy Lee Wallace was inspired by when making this movie and he set certain elements of the film to kind of echo that, including calling the one town Santa Mira. Yeah, Santa Mira, which I think was purposely named that because that was the original town from invasion of the body snatchers yeah so yeah but they live is it, it reminded me a lot of that just in, t- in terms of the shadowy conspiracy stuff so there's definitely a lot of you know the the carpenter elements are are there for sure they're just put together poorly it's like i don't know if you do puzzles but sometimes i'll order a puzzle and the whoever cut the pieces did a really bad job so the puzzle's there and all the pieces are there but you try to put them together and it just looks like jagged and like i feel like this is a poorly cut puzzle yeah it could have been beautiful but instead it looks like a tv dinner yeah yeah it does it does it it looks like a it's soggy or something like the puzzle got wet (laughs) you were talking about the assassins these sort of like robot android people one of them is dick warlock who is michael myers from the second movie oh yeah i saw his name in the credits and he also he also did all the stunt coordination for the movie too. But one more sweet cameo that was in this movie is when they're in Santa Mira, I think it's like six o'clock and there's these megaphones all throughout the town and you find out that there's a curfew and everybody has to go inside because the town is like being watched by one CCTV camera. And the woman who says that about the curfew is Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, yeah. See, I saw that after the fact. I didn't even realize that in the moment. I didn't recognize her voice in the moment as it was happening. All you lucky kids with silver shamrock masks, gather around your TV set. Put on your masks and watch. Honey, don't get too close. You'll ruin your eyes. Jack-o'-lanterns, gather around and watch. Watch the magic pumpkin. Watch. What about you? What's what's your favorite scene from the movie? It's a strange answer because it's not quite like a scene per se. It's it's almost like just a shot that happens in the montage when all the children are heading home, presumably to watch this televised broadcast. So they, they basically the setup is the Silver Shamrock company is going to broadcast this message, which is teased all throughout the movie as this jingle that is London Bridge, but repurposed with lyrics about Halloween coming and the Silver Shamrock Company. They're basically grooming and training these kids to be in front of their TVs at 9 p.m. on Halloween for a special message. So it's like they sell you the mask, you put the mask on, you go trick-or-treating, you come home wearing the mask, and you watch this thing on television. And then when the announcement comes through, it will activate a chip that somehow, because of a Stonehenge piece... (laughs) A small fleck of Stonehenge is in the... The computer chip, because that's how computer chips work. (laughs) 
Right, and it will turn you into some kind of um, hobgoblin of <laughs> snakes and bugs, and you'll die, basically. <laughs> and the snakes and bugs will then kill everyone around. <laughs> right, yeah. Which, in the snakes thing is interesting because of St. Patrick, you know, the, driving the snakes out of Ireland. Right, yeah, there's like a Celtic thing there. But anyways, go on. So, yeah, all the children are filing home, and it's not just in California. It's They kind of do different shots of baton rouge here is it here it's happening in new york new york and then a couple other cities and then when they get to uh the one from phoenix which i think might be the last one i just found that the composition of that shot is first of all it's beautiful and it's really striking and it's also really scary it's like the it's it's what they ended up basing the film's poster on so there's kind of like a parade of children but you can't see them because the sky is just red it's like blood red and all the kids are just silhouettes. And so you can see like kind of point, pointy shapes of their costumes and different stuff. You can see that they're, they're wearing costumes, but they're, they kind of like parade in front of the camera, kind of like on their merry way. They're sort of, it's shot from sort of an, an angle where like you might be looking down on like the city that's below them. But yeah, so I just found that that scene is really scary because like there's so much menace in just the visual of it, like the blood red sky these kids kind of like innocently trudging along maybe merrily but then also like they're just silhouettes so it's almost like they're they look like they could be maybe demons or just something like you don't know what's happening it's kind of the same thing we talked about in the first episode where suburbia is this place where everything has its own place and everything fits together when you see michael myers on a suburban street it's really scary because you know that it doesn't belong even though you don't know what you're looking at and i kind of got the same vibe from the kids there like on their way to probably certain doom but here they are, and they're kind of oblivious to it. And I see why they would make the poster for the film based off of that. It, it conveys so much fear, especially in the coloring of it. So that poster was up for an award uh, for artwork for, I don't know what the award would be, but like some sort of promotional artwork for a film. But it lost to a movie that came out the same year, which was E.T. Damn. It's crazy to think that this movie came out the same year as E.T. Yeah. Because yeah. E.T. is really good. Yeah, E.T. is a great movie. I just watched um, Drew Barrymore on Norm Macdonald's new show on Netflix. Oh, well, speaking of E.T., yeah. I heard she likes that movie. <laughs> Another moment that I do want to highlight that wasn't <laughs> wasn't my favorite, but I laughed out loud while watching it. I had this sort of like Abbott and Costello who's on first moment because Cochran, at, toward the end of the movie, is talking about, you know, he's like doing the big reveal of Stonehenge and the druids and everything. And he says, our way our craft and then dr chalice says witchcraft but i wasn't sure if he said witchcraft or if he said witchcraft (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's a bit yeah they were doing a bit if it goes out it means the death of millions of people everyone watching don't you understand that Say it's a bomb, then say say whatever you want. Say whatever you like. Just get it off the air. Please, you just... I, no, no, I can't prove it. You've got to believe me. Believe me. Take it off the air now, please. You've got to. It means... We should say that toward the end of the film, the climax is essentially that Dr. Chalice gets a lot of the chip-activated tags that have been placed on the masks that they've been selling in the stores and dumps them all over the control board (laughs) and because of 
the Stonehenge piece's proximity to all of that causes all the robots and all the equipment to malfunction and then causes <laughs> <laughs> causes the big bad of the film, this Cochran, Connell Cochran, causes him to essentially just like evaporate, but <laughs> not before turning his face into this like Julian Glover at the end of um Indiana Jones in the uh the Last Crusade. It is he doesn't like go out in pain. He he just becomes progressively more whitewashed, but like with a weird smile on his face. Yeah, it's a weird <laughs> smile. It's so good. I, I watched it a couple times actually. I kept rewinding it. But <laughs> Yeah, that that's the part that you want to rewind for sure. It's the kind of clip that would become like a great internet meme today. And it would just yeah. be like that feeling when you put your toes in a bathtub or like I don't know, something stupid <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, something just completely mundane. <laughs> like that feeling when you take the first bite of a Slim Jim. <laughs> <laughs> when you snap into a Slim Jim. So I need to shout out my brother's really good friend, Tom Aletto, because he is like a horror aficionado. So just before I became a, a DMB fan, but uh, right as I was kind of trying to find out what direction I was going to be in, in terms of like my teen interests, I decided that horror was one of them and that I wanted to watch a lot of slasher movies. And so I, I hit up my brother and I was like, can you ask Tom to like bring over all of his tapes? And I mean, <laughs> if you want to talk about like watching things on tape, I think he just grabbed whatever. And so he brought like Halloween four, five, six. He probably brought like creep show and a couple other sort of like not super great, but not like legendarily bad movies. I think he brought over Halloween three. And I remember reading the back of it and being like, Oh, Michael Myers isn't even in this one. At least if you if you know Michael Myers is in it, you know the kind of thing that you're getting. So I was like, oh, okay, well, like if he was in it, I would watch it. But because he's not, then like the scariness of it is unpredictable. And that to me was terrifying because the subtitle of this film is Season of the Witch and Blair Witch Project had just come out like a couple of years before that. Mm. And that movie like legitimately fucked me up. And I didn't even see the movie until I was probably like 18 because I like the, the marketing for that movie was so fucking scary. And we had just moved into a new house and I was like terrified of all the rooms, just thinking of whatever this movie, The Blair Witch Project, was that was a, being marketed as a true story. Anyway, I I thought witches and like witchy shit was so scary. I thought it was like the end all be all of everything that was scary. And I remember seeing the the VHS cover for this film with the kids trick or treating, and I remember being like, "Oh, season of the witch? Yeah, fuck that. I'm out. I'm, I can't do it. No witches." So I was very disappointed to watch it and find out that like, oh, actually there are no witches because I'm like, I'm ready for it now. I'm a 28 year old man. I'm ready to watch some witch shit yeah. and there's, there's none to be found.
Yeah, this was an interesting one. So we were talking earlier. I had a couple thoughts about songs that might fit the movie. I did sort of a preliminary search and just looked up Dave Matthews Band songs that mentioned witches. I think there was one, but it was not good for what we need. (laughs) But you found a song. So tell me about what you got. Okay, so, yeah, I, I was thinking, okay, so... Uh, I was trying to look for witches and stuff like that. I, yeah, I, and I was like, no, I'm, I'm focusing on the wrong element of it. What do I like about this movie that stayed with me? And again, I think the opening credits for sure and this kind of element of television that is throughout the film, it's not only going to be the medium by which, you know, Sawin gets resurrected again in the world, but also it's the thing that earlier in the film, the other Halloween movies are referenced on. I don't know. That preposition sounds weird. It's the thing on which the um the other <laughs> halloween things are referenced yeah i was thinking about television a lot and i i really like the opening credits like i said and they're kind of presented as this like grainy vhs um tv kind of way and so i was like oh yeah i'm gonna think about dave songs talk about tv whatever some sort of commentary and one of the songs from early ish it's the song seek out and the version of this song that i really like is the dave matthews and tim reynolds acoustic version at Luther College, which was recorded in, I believe, 96 and came out in 99. Um, but the song itself was first released on Remember Two Things, which is like the first day of release. There's a reference to Late at Night with TV's Hungry Child, Big Belly Swelled. Oh, but for the price of a Coke or a smoke, I could keep alive those hungry eyes. So you have this Dave Matthews. I, I just picture like a Dave Matthews character like sitting up at 3 a.m. He's got his whiskey. He is up, he's watching TV, he's, there's this very uniquely American thing of watching like a, please call today, your donation is important yeah. for UNICEF or for whatever kind of Red Cross um, humanitarian efforts are happening for, you know, to, to cure world hunger or to help contribute to the end of it. And just this idea of like, oh yeah, I could go buy a Coke, I could buy a pack of cigarettes, I could buy anything that, you know, in this kind of like Americanized consumer culture or you could literally donate to helping people who are actually in need of help, like not in developed worlds or not certainly not in the Western world. So later on in that verse, I think it's like a take a look again. Uh, everyday things change, but basically they stay the same, which is a very like hits blunt. Like, you know, man, when you think about it, the more things change, the more they really stay the same. <sighs> <laughs> Which is like the kind of statement that would be made at a Dave Matthews Band concert. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and I I don't know, something about that image kind of connected with me just because of this film being what it is and the way, yeah, like I said, that it uses television and maybe what it says about television. I, I think there was maybe some hostile reception to its like really limp critiques of, of the commercialization of Halloween and kind of television's pervasive influence. I don't really think... Maybe it's not even making those critiques. I think they're there if you want them to be. But if they are there, then they're definitely not like represented well because they're most of it is really rushed and kind of lazy um, in the movie. So I don't think that it holds up significantly. But just that image kind of stayed with me. Uh, full disclosure, I listened to this song for the very first time today at work while I was working. And I'm looking at the lyrics right now, and I'm not actually seeing the line that I heard. It was something about like a rich man driving around like a fancy car oh yeah uh, look at me and my fancy car and my bank account yeah there was like a lot of consumer heavy imagery that 
brought to mind Connell Cochran. And I guess if you're going to look at the movie through a lens, it's kind of a critique of capitalism and these big businesses like eating up the world and eventually killing the younger generations. Hmm. That's one way you could look at it. I don't think anybody looks at it that way, but that is a way that you could <laughs> look at this movie. And that was like the comparison that I heard in the song. It's also interesting to note that the movie doesn't necessarily end with the prophesized Samhain necessarily being ended. It it could, in fact, be happening. The movie kind of ends on an ambiguous note. Yeah, and, and another credit to the movie, even horror movies that are really horrific and are really gruesome and are really over the top, for the most part, they keep children out of it. And this movie does not. You see a, like, nine-year-old boy die in the movie, and it's pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, A New York Times reviewer wrote, Halloween 3 manages the not easy feat of being anti-children, anti-capitalism, anti-television, and (laughs) anti-Irish. Oh, look at me in my fancy car and my bank account. Oh, how I wish I could take it all Down to my grave, God knows I'd save and save Man, take a look again, take a look again Things you have collected Well, in the end, it all piles up so tall To one big nothing, one big nothing at all Forget about the reason And the treasons we are seeking I really loved uh, listening to live at Luther College when I was in high school because there's so much ridiculous stage banter that only comes from Dave because he's on stage with Tim Reynolds, but Tim Reynolds does not have a microphone. So it's Dave either kind of like muttering to himself or like saying something to Tim or like being stoned and talking to these college kids. So I used to really like that as a kid because I was like, he's so goofy. And I remember downloading some Dave thing from LimeWire that was like prefaced with Dave saying something like, uh, excuse me. Hold, hold on one second. Uh, if, listen, uh, we want everyone to have a good time, but um, uh, if you're gonna fight and if you're gonna shove girls and if you're not gonna have a good time here, then get the fuck out. <laughs> we passed that around my friend group a lot, and we laughed about that, and we used to say that to each other. So your Dave impression is like, what's that big uh, rooster's name from Looney Tunes? <laughs> Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> I do declare. Slashing to Me is made by me, Pat Hoskin. And me, Chris Rady. If you like this episode, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Slash Into Me. You can find us on SoundCloud as well. Like us on Facebook. Make sure you subscribe to our channel on iTunes. And rate us. That's, That's a huge thing that will help ensure the future of the show and to make sure that we get to the end of the michael Myers saga and of course a shout out to katie knee who did the artwork for the podcast she sells cards and artwork on etsy as well as custom work we'll include a link to her shop in the description for this episode so make sure you check out her awesome work and send us an email at slash into me at gmail.com let us know what you think of the show let us know the first time you saw halloween 3 what you think of halloween 3 who should remake Halloween 3, send us some fan artwork, whatever you guys want. Uh, And stay tuned for episode four, uh, the return of Michael Myers to the Halloween franchise. We're actually going to do a dual episode where we cover both Halloween 4 and Halloween 5. uh, So you get double the fun in the next episode. 
So look forward to that. My fucking microwave is beeping. Sorry, I gotta do this again.